All right, well, I have titled today's message, Famous Faith. The faith of that church in Thessalonica went out. It spread out abroad. And uh, what God had done in that church became quite famous, if you will. There's a saying that I have heard before. I heard a pastor once say regarding another pastor who had fallen into some pretty grievous sin. Uh, He said that that pastor's repentance needs to become as widespread as his sin has, you know. His sin, that's, that's one of the dangers of being in, in public ministry. Uh, your, your sin, when, when you, if you fall into sin, and you get exposed publicly. And it's, it's a, uh, a fearful thing. And it's, a, it's a, a, a very hard thing. And so, anyways, the idea there is that, you know, you brought reproach on the name of Christ. You've sinned and you have fallen. And so, when you turn and repent, it needs to be as well known as your sin was. You know, it needs to be very evident. It needs to be very clear that, that a person has cried out to God, that they have received forgiveness from Christ, that they have turned from their sin, and that they're walking forward in Jesus' name. Now, that could certainly be said of the church in Thessalonica. When these guys turned to the Lord Jesus, and they repented of their sin, and they turned from their idolatry, and they began to walk with Christ, it was widespread. People were blown away at what God had done in that place. Word had spread far and wide. As I mentioned last week, the location of that region, Macedonia, and the the city of Thessalonica were such that there was a tremendous population of various types of people, commerce, and pagan idolatry for that matter. And so the depravity in that city was, was well known well-known. It was a wicked place. It was a wicked place. And so when God began to move and people came to Christ and began to turn from their sin, that became very widespread and well-known. And so that's the way that it ought to be. That's the way that it ought to be. You know, when a person turns from their sins to Christ, it doesn't typically make national news, right? Uh, most any of us in here, when we came to Christ, it's not like all of a sudden it's in all the headlines that, that we have turned from Christ. And so obviously it, didn't, it wasn't widespread in that sense, but there is no doubt that there was a supernatural and radical work of God that happened in your life and it was apparent to the people around you. Amen? And that's, that's what we've seen today, folks. We witnessed that day by these brothers that came up onto the stage. There's no question there. There's no doubt these are brand new men, new in Christ. They have repented, trusted Christ. God has changed them radically, and it's very apparent for all people to see. And this is true not only for the person who might outwardly appear to be um, you know, you know, we, however we label people, criminals, drug, drug addicts, we usually look at those, at that, the people from that, that uh, world as the, the people who really need help or who really need God. But the reality is it's so much more broad than that. There are people on the other end of the spectrum who are just self-righteous, moralists. You know, they might not outwardly have those same practices and struggles, but inwardly they are still just as depraved in God's sight because they are trusting in their own righteousness somehow believing that they don't need God's grace because they're good right and I think that is more heinous in the sight of God quite honestly so both ends of the spectrum and everywhere in between need to be rescued by God and need to repent so whether it's repenting of drug abuse whether it's repenting of 
anger and gossip and slander or, or violence, contentiousness, quarrel, being quarrelsome, or whether it's from self-righteousness, whatever it may be, we must repent, we must turn, and it's apparent when we do. It's apparent when we do. You can tell when someone has encountered the living God and been transformed. Now, I am by no means saying that that person is now perfect, that they no longer struggle or don't even struggle in, in you know, a variety of ways, right? Because the struggle is real. Can we just be honest? Permission to be honest, to keep it real with y'all? We struggle, don't we? And the Bible says that we will on this side of heaven, on this side of glory. Uh, and that's, that's just a very real part of it. But we are struggling forward. We are struggling forward in life faithfully by the Holy Spirit and the power of Christ in our life. And so that was very, as I said, apparent with the Thessalonians. Their repentance was as famous as their sin was. And today, we're going to see really some markers in this text of what that looked like. We're going to see what this, what this uh, repentance in their lives produced that spread around the known the, the world and region there that Paul could say about this church. And so, as I said, I've titled this Famous Faith. And so, three main headings, and the first one we're going to see here is Paul's remembrance of the Thessalonians' conduct. Paul's remembrance of the Thessalonians' conduct. So, I've got three R's here for us. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father. So there in verse 1, Paul describes them as the church that is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that this is a real point of emphasis. Paul is emphatic about their legitimacy as a church of born-again believers. We talked about this last week. When Paul came into that town, God began to work in, in a very uh, special way. People were coming to Christ from the Jewish synagogue, from the pagan temples. People were coming to faith in Christ. And then there were those Jews there that did not turn to Christ, and they went and they basically hired a mob and, and just set the town uh, in a stir against the Christians there, and Paul had to leave abruptly. Now, some people believe that Paul was there for as little as three weeks. Some would say that it was a little longer than that, but not much longer, apparently. It's hard to say. And so when Paul left, he seemed to have a, very, a real burden for this church. How were they doing? You know, they were so new, really in their infancy. Uh, three weeks, six weeks, a little, a little longer maybe, who knows. But Paul was very concerned for their well-being. Were they going to stay the course? And so he, he sent Timothy to them, and Timothy came back with this wonderful report that, yes, they were standing strong and that they were just serving the Lord faithfully and that their reputation was amazing, widespread, and so Paul says, man, I know that you are a church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's doing, and there's no other explanation for it. I have this confidence, and I have this rejoicing in the Father. And that's exactly what Paul does here. He praises God. 
You notice there in first, uh, verse 2 that he says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. So Paul knew that the reason that they stood was God. And there was no other reason than that. And he thanked God for it. He praised God for it. He says, we pray for you, brothers and sisters, and when we pray, we thank God for what He is doing in your midst. You indeed are a a church in God in Christ. You'll notice here in verse 3 that Paul specifically praises God for their faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. There in verse 3, he says, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this was one of Paul's favorite triads, if you will, of Christian conduct. His favorite combination. And we see this in a few different verses. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, it says, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, He says, and now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is what? Love. That's right. So faith, hope, and love, love is the greatest. And then Colossians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. So Paul he seemed to really put a, a, a high priority on these things, faith, hope, and love. And when he saw it in a church, he pointed it out, and he praised God for the fact that those, those were realities in that church. They had hope, they had faith, they had love. And so I just want to take a moment to kind of talk about those three things, because they are important, and they do come up regularly and as a, we want to be a church that is pleasing to God, and we want to have these things in our lives and in our church. So the first thing that Paul thanked God for it was that they had a faith that worked. They had a faith that worked. You know, works are a visible expression of an invisible reality. When you place your faith or your trust in Christ, it's not like you can see that. It's not like something goes up into the air and it's like, ah, that person believed, right? It has to be demonstrated some other way. And the Bible says that if you do have faith, it will be visible through your works, through your deeds, through your actions. And this is interesting to me because Jesus kind of says something similar to this in John chapter 3, verse 8, when he's talking to Nicodemus. He says that the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You can't see the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is invisible. But you can see a changed life, and you know that person has encountered the Spirit of God, has been filled by the Spirit of God. Much like you cannot see the wind, as Jesus uses in this analogy, but you can see the effects of it. You can see the trees blowing in the wind. You can see the the dust blowing across the ground and the leaves. And so that is the effect of the wind. And so such is the effect of the Holy Spirit. You can't see the the Spirit, but you can see a changed life. And, And such is the case with faith. You can't see faith per se, but you can see the effects of it. You can see the actions, the deeds that are wrought in a person's life who has faith. A person who has trusted in Christ. 
And as I've said before, we don't believe in just faith and faith. You'll hear that a lot. People will say, you just got to have faith. But what is the object of your faith? What is it exactly that you have faith in? And here he's talking about faith in Christ. And as a, a having faith in Christ, that propels them forward to work. And we don't work so that we can have God's favor. That's another thing that we have to be very clear about here. We don't work, we don't do good deeds, deeds of love, so that we can have God's blessing and favor. But because we have faith in Christ, because we have God's blessing and God's favor, it propels us forward to serve Him. And James talks about this as well, and we know this verse. In chapter 2, verse 14, he says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed, be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, James is in no way putting down the necessity of faith. Salvation comes through faith. It is by grace, it is through faith. We believe on Jesus Christ, and we are born again by His Spirit. But saving faith will always be followed by, accompanied with, works. You know, you can have works and not have faith. You cannot have faith and not have works. Cain would be an example of one in the Bible who had works but didn't have faith. Have you ever wondered why God did not accept Cain's sacrifice? Cain gave of the fruits of the ground, and his brother Abel gave from the flock. And God was pleased with Abel's offering but not Cain's. Now, in the Bible, there is a prescription given for first fruits of, of the, uh, the crops and grain and so on and so forth. So that is a pleasing offering to God. What is it? Well, the New Testament gives us a little insight into this, that you know, Cain was not a man of faith. He was a wicked man. He did not love God. He didn't honor God. He didn't have real faith. And so God didn't accept the gift from his hand. And so this was a man who had works, but his works meant nothing to God if it wasn't accompanied by love and faith. And so Paul says, look, you guys are a church that have faith in God and that you work, you work, you serve the Lord, you serve each other as an extension of that faith. And I praise God for that. So we want to be a people who have action attached to our faith. If we say we believe, then our lives ought to demonstrate that on some level. It ought to manifest that. Some people are just neutral. You don't really see them doing anything one way or the other. And some folks say one thing and their life reflects something totally different through their actions, their attitude. Um, and that, that cannot be. We need to have a people, uh, be a people who are consistent. We have faith in Christ and that can be seen in the way that we live our lives and our obedience to Jesus and our interactions one with another, how we love and serve each other. It's just so very important. Paul also mentions their love. They had a love that labored. A love that labored. You know, sometimes it is work to love, isn't it? Sometimes we have to work hard at loving people. Some people are just not as lovable as other people, right? 
And so, just being real, you know, we can be honest here. And so, there's no excuse, though. We have to love. We must love. We have been loved. Somehow we think we're lovable. See, Jesus, I mean, I could understand why he would love me, <laughs> right? But the truth is, we're not, lo- we're not that lovable. We're just, we weren't. And he wasn't like, look at, so cute. I, I adore them. It wasn't like that, you know? And, and so, if we have been loved in such, a, such an amazing way, how can we not love somebody else? And we have to work at it. And we have to do it tirelessly. We have to be people who love aggressively. And such was the case for the church there in Thessalonica. You know, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 says that if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. John was an old man at this point. You know, some about old pe- people, when they get to a certain age, they just don't care anymore, and they'll just, just say what they're thinking, you know. And I, I think that was the case here with John. He's like almost 100 years old, and he's like, you know what? If you say that you love God and hate your brother, you're a liar. And he says, he, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Now, this is fascinating. This kind of parallels that idea of the wind. You can't really see it, but you can see the effects. There's, there's something interesting here. He says, you can't see God. And so, if you can't love your brother who you, who you can see, who has been born of the Spirit, who is a child of God... How can you say that you love God whom you can't see? The way that we express our love to God is by loving each other. Is that not amazing? That is amazing. You know, that is one very tangible way in which we can experience and express love to God is by receiving and giving love uh, amongst one another in the body of Christ. And that was true of the church of the Thessalonians. That's true of this church. I praise God for that. The faith in this church, the love in this church, the acceptance and embrace in this church has been just so awesome to be a part of and to see. And I praise God for that. I give thanks to God for that. And then he also says hope. They had great hope. They had a hope that persevered. They had a hope that persevered. You know, hope is... It's this confidence, it's this expectation that God is going to make good on what He said He was going to do. It is an enduring confidence in the truth and promises of God. You know, they they were suffering there. Don't think that when Paul got kicked out of Thessalonica, all that went away. That hatred and animosity that was pointed directly at Paul and his co-laborers undoubtedly turned right in on the Christians there who remained. And it would be easy for them to begin to say or think, God is not good, God is not for me, this is not true, but they didn't. They persevered. They persevered in their hope and their confidence and their expectation of God's truth and promises that they were the beloved of God and that they were going to see Him one day face to face, that they were saved through Christ and that God was good and that God was working in all of this. They, they maintained hope in the midst of all of that. And Paul praised God for that. He praised God for their love, for their hope, and for their faith. And so those are three very important things to the Christian. And so that was how Paul remembered them. That was Paul's remembrance. He says, I remember these things about you. You're so very loving, 
so full of faith, so full of hope. And I praise God and my remembrance of you in that way. So that was point one, Paul's remembrance of the conduct there in Thessalonica. Now point two, it says Paul's reasoning for their response to the gospel. Paul said there is a reason. There is a reason why you guys responded so favorably to the gospel that we came and preached. And Paul is going to now give that to us in verses 4 and 5. And I would submit to you that this is really kind of like the, the thematic portion of this text right here. Everything that we have read before and everything that we will read after points right back to the center of the chapter here. And I, I almost started to just start with these verses and kind of rearrange how we were going to uh, work our way through this text because I do believe that this is kind of the crux of it right here. Paul talks about all of these wonderful things happening in the church there, but here is the point where Paul gives his reason. Paul knows why. Paul knows why the, uh, things happened the way they did so supernaturally in their midst, and that's what he's going to go into now in verse 4 and 5. He says, Knowing... Beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. So Paul points to election, <clears throat> the doctrine of election. He says, knowing your election, brethren, because you are God's elect, because you are those who are chosen by God. Now, I just want to preface this portion with a couple of thoughts here, if I, if I may. I, I've talked about this doctrine, the doctrine of election before. It is all throughout the Scriptures, Old and New Testament. It's inescapable. Nobody denies that it is a thing, but different people do explain it in different ways. There are People will define election in different ways. And so this has been a very heated debate for a very long time, since almost the beginning of the church, quite frankly. I don't intend on settling it today, and I certainly am not trying to stir up a storm, though I might be getting ready to drop a bomb in here. I just don't know. So I would ask that if you have a stone and you intend on throwing it at me, let's wait till we're outside so as not to get blood on the carpet, okay? Can we at least do that? I say that in jest because, you know, there's no reason to get upset. You know, we can agree to disagree on this matter. Uh, it's not a matter of gospel salvation, you know, um, and that's what we need to understand. And so we may have very differing views and understandings of the Scriptures in this particular matter. I'm going to give you mine as I understand it from the Scriptures, and you may disagree, and that is perfectly okay. We can still have good fellowship in the Lord Jesus, and continue on in His name. Amen? Amen? And so let me just start by saying that right out in the gate. Because people do get mad. It's, it's amazing to me. People get downright hostile over, over Bible doctrine. You know, I was in a Bible study one time at U-Turn uh, for Christ in Tennessee. It's faith-based recovery. And there's a discipleship packet, and there was a section on the Trinity. And so I'm teaching this. And uh, this guy speaks up, and he got the answer wrong, and another guy laughed at him from across the room. And this guy was like a, a 
a young guy, but he was like an army vet from Afghanistan, and he was hot, and he slammed his Bible on the ground, and I, he was getting ready to like pounce, and I'm like, oh man, dude, I've never seen this happen in a Bible study before, and so I was like, all right, let's just stop, let's pray, let's regroup, and so that happens, man, people get, people get hot, man, get a, get a fight going right in the middle of a Bible study, anyways, all right, so um, you know, here's, here's the thing, guys. Here's the thing. I want to glorify God. I want to glorify God, and I am grieved that I don't glorify Him as much as I, as I should, as I wish that I could. You know, you ever feel that way? And God's glory is God's goal. God's glory is God's goal. He is high and lifted up. And everything that he does is to that end. When God reveals something about himself to us, it is so that we will know him and love him and praise him more. So that we will give him more glory and more honor because he's worthy of all the glory and honor that we could ever give him and then more. Amen? And so that's why God reveals things about himself to us in the scriptures, ultimately, there are other reasons, but I would say that is the overarching. And sometimes things are very hard for us, like the doctrine of hell, for instance. Nobody likes to talk about that. Nobody wants to talk about that or even think about that. But it's in the scriptures. Jesus talked about it more than anybody else in the Bible. So there are hard things in the Bible, the wrath of God. And we have to come face to face with them, and we have to, we can't water it down or turn it into something else. We have to we have to be honest about it. We, we don't want to just skip over it. It's easy to do that. We do do that a lot. And I don't want to dilute it. I don't want to say, well, it doesn't mean this. It can't mean this. Because there's this verse over here, therefore, you know, I'm going to water this verse down and, and dilute it. I can't do that in good conscience before God. I have to please Christ and not men. And so I want to be faithful to the Word of God. And you know what? I want to believe it. I want to glorify God in it, and I want to preach it. And that's it. And so this is one of those doctrines. And so the doctrine of election, as I said in verse 4, Paul attributes their works, their response to the gospel message, to the fact that God chose them. God chose them. They did not choose God first. God chose them, and they responded to God's calling. And Paul affirms this in verse 5, by the effect that the gospel had in their response to it. He says in verse 4, Knowing, beloved brethren, you are God's elect, your election by God. In verse 5, he says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. And so the first thing that Paul notes here is that when we came and we preached the gospel to you, it was not in word only. It wasn't just a bunch of empty words that just went off into the air and floated away or fell to the ground. We spoke the gospel to you, and God pierced your heart with the truth of the glory of Christ, His death, burial, resurrection, His sinless life on your behalf. And you were drawn to God. You heard that message, and you knew that you needed it. You knew that you were a sinner and that you had fallen short of the glory of God and that you stood guilty before a judge 
But there was this glorious news, this good news, the good news of the gospel that God sent his son to die so that you could have life. He said, and you believed that. It came with full force. It came with full power. He said that it was the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God penetrated their hearts, opened their hearts, and brought them into this full conviction that what Paul was preaching was true and that they needed it. Paul said that happened. And he said, and you had much assurance. They knew that they knew that this was the Word of God. There was no question in their minds. There was no question in their hearts. They knew that they knew that this was the truth, that this was the truth of God and that they needed it. And they responded. They believed. They trusted. They repented. And that was all God's doing, all God's sovereign doing. And Paul says, because you were God's elect. You have been chosen by God. You know, just a couple other translations of this verse. In the English Standard Version, he says the same thing. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The New Living Translation says, We know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you and has chosen you to be His own people. For when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words, but also with power. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. And so I don't know how the Scriptures could be any more clear in this. See, the Bible teaches that we are rebels by nature. That we are born into this world and sin is is what comes natural to us because that is our nature. It's part of the fall and the curse. And so we are rebels against God by nature. The Bible teaches that we would not choose God if God did not choose us. That we would not, in and of our own volition, come to God. We must, we must be enacted upon by God. God draws us. God calls us. God opens our eyes and our heart to the truth and we respond. Do we respond? Absolutely we respond. Is it an act of volition of the will? Absolutely it is. When God opens our eyes, opens our heart, and draws us, we come. How could we do anything less when we come face to face with the glory of the Savior, when He is calling and drawing us? You know, Acts chapter 13, 48, Paul says, uh, or excuse me, Luke writes, Paul is preaching the gospel, and he said the Jews have rejected the gospel, but the gospel is going out to the Gentiles now. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, and they glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. There were some appointments there that day. God had called some folks to salvation. God's elect were in that place. And on that day, they believed. They received eternal life. In Philippians chapter 16, when Paul goes there and starts to preach the gospel and to plant the church there in Philippi, the first convert there was a woman named Lydia. I talked about her last week. Remember the seller of purple? It says that in verse 14, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God, and the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. She was chosen by God that day. God opened her heart. 
She heard the gospel and she believed the gospel. That is glorious. I praise God for that. God has revealed that to us through His Word. And I thank God because I just don't think I would have ever chosen God. I know who I am. If it weren't for God, I know where I would be. Does that, anybody, does that resonate with you at all? I, am I the only one? But I, I know this. And I believe that I am where I am because God reached down and saved me because He chose to set His love on me. And if you have trusted Christ today, God chose to set His love on you. And if you have not trusted Christ and you're here, I believe that is not a coincidence. God is drawing you today. God is drawing you to Himself. And He wants to bring you into eternal life, to, to bring you into everlasting life. But you have to believe. You have to trust. You have to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved. To God be the glory. You know, He's, he's sovereign in all things. And why this is so important to me is because I don't know about you guys, but I need a sovereign God. I need a God who's big. He's a big God. God does what He wants to do, and nobody's going to ever stop Him. Amen? If God wants to save, God's going to save. He's free to save. He has purpose from eternity past that He's going to save. If He didn't save, we would all be lost. But such was God's kindness. Such was God's amazing love and grace that He purposed that He was going to redeem a people to give to His Son as a gift. And we will forever worship the Lamb. We will forever sing praise to the Lamb who was slain for us. And it was all God's doing. God gets all the glory God gets all the glory, and that's God's design. Come on, God, you know this. That's God's design. We have no room for boasting in any of this. God didn't look down the corridors of time and see that we would choose Him first, and so then He chose us knowing that we were going to choose Him first. Then that would allow us to boast. I chose. I chose. Why didn't you choose? Why didn't they choose? I don't know, but I chose. There's no boasting there. God chose us. We believe and we love because God chose and first loved. God chose and first loved. And we see that here. That's exactly what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians. It's exactly what he's saying. The reason that you guys believed is because you're God's elect. Because God has chosen you and you are loved by God. And when the gospel came forth, it came with power. And you turned and you repented and the Holy Spirit gave you full conviction and assurance. And now look at the fruit of your lives. Look at the faith. Look at the love. Look at the hope. And these other things that we're getting ready to look at in the, in the rest of the chapter. As I said, this is kind of like the bedrock of the chapter. It's right here in the center. And to God be the glory, it's God's doing. And this gospel that Paul preached to them, the gospel that they believed, was not just any gospel. Okay? Paul says... It was our gospel. Our gospel. And I think there's some significance to that. First, it's a particular gospel. There's a lot of gospels out in the world, folks, and you need to know that. There are a lot of gospels out there, but there's one saving gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that Paul consistently preached everywhere he went. There were people who came in and tried to to pervert or distort that gospel, Judaizers, and to say that you needed to have works of the law embedded back into it. 
And Paul said, if anyone changes the gospel or adds or takes away from the gospel, let that person be accursed. So it's a particular gospel. And so we want to be right on the gospel. It is a matter of life and death. And so it was our gospel, a particular gospel. It was a personal gospel. It was Paul's gospel. Is it your gospel? I hope it is. It's my gospel. I know it's your gospel. All right? God, as I have said many times before, does not have grandchildren. He has children and nothing else. You have to be God's child. You have to trust Christ. You have to believe on Jesus Christ and be saved. You cannot get in on somebody else's faith. And so it has to be your gospel. It was personal. And you know what? It was a powerful gospel. It was a powerful gospel. And Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The gospel is the power of God. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That is to say, I will never be let down. I have never been let down. I will never be let down by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I will never be ashamed of that. That is the power of God unto salvation. And he says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, that the just shall live by faith. What is revealed in the gospel is that we are in big trouble, that we were separated from God in our sin, and that is bad news, and we are accountable to God for sin. And we see just how seriously God takes sin by the wrath that was poured out on His Son on the cross. That's what it took. So sin is serious, and God is a judge, and that is revealed to us in the gospel. But God is also loving, and God is gracious, and God is merciful. And God paid a very high price so that we could be the children of God, and that is revealed to us in the gospel. And so the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel that the just shall live by faith. So we have to believe. You have to trust. You have to call upon the name of the Lord and say, Jesus, I need you. I believe in you. I am a sinner. I have sinned. And you have to call upon Jesus to be saved and then turn, repent, turn from your sin. That is what it is to live by faith to trust by faith. And then the power of God is unleashed on you through the gospel message. And then in verse 5 there, Paul points to the fact that they had received him. You guys received us as genuine messengers of the gospel. So they received the message with power and conviction, but they also received Paul. They received Paul and his co-laborers as genuine. They knew that these guys were the real deal, that this message was truth and that the messengers were sent by God. You know, character matters for the messenger. We have a glorious message that God has given us to share. Grace, free grace for the sinner at Christ's expense. Christ, the great sin bearer for the guilty. Eternal life for those who do not deserve it. That is great news. But you know what? The character of the messenger matters. The way that we convey the message matters. We don't want to be offensive. 
We don't want to somehow bring reproach on the name of Christ or the message itself by uh, having a life that does not reflect Christ and the gospel, right? And so that's so very important for us to know that. And that was the case for Paul. You know, God can use anybody, and God will use a donkey if he has to. We know that. But he shouldn't have to, you know what I mean? Be a clean vessel. Be a vessel of honor. Be one that is fit for the Master's use. Bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. All right, now this brings us to our third point, the third R, and this is the widespread, uh, widespread reputation of the Thessalonians. The widespread reputation of the Thessalonians. So the first thing that we see here is that they were imitators. They were imitators. And Paul says in verse 6, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. So the Thessalonians there, they became followers. They followed Paul and they followed Christ. And specifically what Paul is saying here is that in that you have suffered for the gospel. You know, Christ suffered, obviously, in ways that no one in this world has or ever will suffer. Paul suffered in his ministry to Christ and his ministry endeavors. In fact, when Jesus called Saul on the Damascus road and he sent Ananias to, to, to give Saul his sight back, Paul, he said, I must show him the things that he will suffer. And so Paul suffered greatly. But then the Thessalonians, they suffered. And he said, because you have suffered the way that you have in your, in your faith, you have followed us. You have followed Christ. You have followed Paul, having received the word in much affliction. It wasn't easy for them to receive the word. It's kind of easy for us. For the most part, it's not going to cost us our lives. It's not going to cost us our, our income. It's, it's not going to cost us a lot. There, there are occasions when it does, and it, it will but these folks received Christ in the midst of true hostility. You remember that when Paul left Thessalonica and went to Berea, the persecutors from Thessalonica went to Berea to the next town to continue to harass him. That level of hostility was then turned in on these people who believed the word. And so he said, you became a, an imitator of us. You became an imitator to us, and you did this with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They did it joyfully. I mean, that's a supernatural work right there. When you can suffer well, when you can have hardship, when you can have calamity, when you can have loss, and you can do it somehow with the joy of the Holy Spirit, that is a work of God if there ever was one. I don't know about you, but it's for me, as soon as the heat gets turned up, I start to struggle a little bit. My thinking starts to get a little weird. I know all these wonderful truths about God, but God tests me in that. God tests us in that. Are we going to maintain, are we going to remain steadfast in our love and trust for Him with joy? These did. These believers in Thessalonica did. And so they were imitators of Paul, imitators of Christ. And then, as such, they became examples. So that's the next, that's B, under their, their reputation. They were first and for, uh, foremost imitators. They imitated the right thing. And then, as a result of that, they became examples to others. And that's the way that it should be. So in verse 7, 
He says, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. So they became examples to everybody there in their area and in the surrounding regions. For what they had done, their faith had gone forth. It had sounded forth throughout everywhere. And so, in imitating Christ and Paul, they became examples. They had a regionally renowned repentance. A regionally renowned repentance. You like that? And so, that's pretty amazing. And so, it wasn't just there in their circles amongst themselves. I mean, it went out everywhere. And so, being an example is so important in the New Testament. They were imitators and they were examples, and they really had an impact on others. And you know, Paul often calls people to imitate him as he sets himself forth as an example. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. He says, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. In Philippians 3.17, he says, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. So that's important. Being an imitator, being an example in the Christian life, all that should be going on. We should be in, uh, imitating other people who we see that are walking faithfully with Christ, looking unto them. But we also should be being an example, Right? And that's the whole idea with discipleship. We should be being discipled. We should all have a mentor. We should be mentoring other people. Everybody should be in the game on some level. Paul says, note those who so walk. So he's like, it ain't just me. We could be like, well, of course, it's the Apostle Paul. He could say that. Nobody else could say that. But he said, note, there are other people among you who walk in the same way. Take note of them because you have a pattern. You have a pattern to follow. And so the Thessalonian church there, the church of Thessalonica, they were an example. They were imitators, and they were an example. And we're called to do the same thing, to imitate Christ, to imitate faithful brothers and sisters that we look up to, but to be that example for other people, right? That's how God uses that, I'm telling you, in a very profound way. And so something I've asked people before, and I think this is, you know, it's a really searching question, would you wish your walk on somebody else? Think about that for a second. Would you wish your walk with God on somebody else? Would you want somebody else to have your walk? And so the answer we, we could and should be able to say is yes. Yes, we can have a walk with God that we would be delighted for other people to share in and to have. Now, I don't mean that in a prideful, arrogant, lifted up way, like I am the man, I am the model, and if everyone were just like me, it'd be, you know, I'm not talking about that. But a sincere love and faith in Christ and, and, and a desire to obey Him and to, to serve Him and to bless other people, that's something that we should all be in the game doing and stirring one another up and provoking one another and, and looking to each other as an example and being encouraged to move forward. That's, that's what we're talking about here. And so Paul points that out. Now, 
Honestly, I think we cringe at the idea of telling somebody to imitate us, right? More times than not, we hear that and think, "Uh uh-uh, nope. Paul could say that. Obviously, Jesus could say that. And what we would typically say is, no, 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 don't follow me, follow Christ, right? We, We say that, and that's not a bad thing. Ultimately, we should all be following Christ. But I think that oftentimes the reason that we do that is because we want to remove the burden off of ourselves of being an example. Don't look at me. Just look at Jesus. Don't be worrying about what I'm doing. Just look at Jesus. No, we all need to be looking unto Jesus, but we also ought to be encouraging and looking at the pattern that other believers set and and moving forward in Jesus' name. We ought to be imitators of Christ and examples one for another. Amen? Now, these were brand new Christians, and they had a faith worth imitating. That is amazing to me. They had a faith worth imitating. You know, age, age is kind of it's irrelevant in some ways. And I'm talking especially physical age. You can have people who are much older uh, and they're not as mature as people who are younger. We see this in 1 Timothy 4.12. Paul told Timothy, he said, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, conduct, love, spirit, faith, and purity. Timothy was probably 40 in his 40s, and he was a youth compared to the elders there in Ephesus. And Paul said, Don't let them look down on you for that. You set the example. You set the standard. You set the bar. And so that is a command really for all of us. We are to set the example. We are to set the example. Now, the, the, Thessal- the church in Thessalonica, they were young spiritually, and they still had a faith worth imitating. And so that's amazing to me. And so that, that is, I think, Paul's command to us, too, is to, to set that example, to be that example to the believer, he says, to the believer, And that was certainly true of the church there in Thessalonica. They were examples in genuine repentance. Examples in genuine repentance. Verse 9, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. So word had already spread to Achaia, to Corinth, where Paul is writing from about how he had been received, the, the, the fruits of Paul's ministry there in their midst. And what spread was how they had turned from pagan idolatry to Christ because paganism was rampant in that culture, worshiping all kinds of little figurines and statues and the ways in which they would go about worshiping these things and what these things actually represented. It wasn't even so much the little statue it represented oftentimes prosperity, whether it was agricultural prosperity or fertility to be able to have children or financial prosperity or protection. And those are things that we can worship in this day and age. And we worship all kinds of things like that. And so they turned away from the, from the false gods, from the idols that they were worshiping to worship Christ and that was a very outward manifestation of their faith. That was works, you know. That was a work that accompanied their faith. They believed Christ, and they turned from their false worship. They turned from their pagan idolatry, and they became examples in that. You know, we can become examples in repentance, too, because we repent when we believe on Jesus, but can I tell you, repentance is a very regular thing. 
Can I get an amen? I mean, we have to repent regularly. It's a daily thing uh, because that is our, our tendency. We're prone, we're drawn to sin, sinful patterns and habits, and sometimes it's a daily, if not hour by hour repentance and turning. And I think that's where we need to be an example more than anything uh, because that's just being real. You know, some people, they're like, I repented of my sins 20 years ago, and I've been a perfect example ever since. <laughs> and we know better in the first place, but then secondly, that causes people to just get real quiet. They will not talk about their struggles. They will not talk about their needs and their issues because everybody else is modeling perfection, so I'm certainly not going to speak up. And we can't be real. We can't be real. We need to be a people that are real, that we're open, that we're honest, that we're modeling repentance regularly amongst each other and being you know honest about that it's good to be honest look we are not modeling perfection in this church i'm sure you know that if you've been here more than one sunday you know that all right but what we are modeling is faithfully struggling forward just faithfully struggling forward growing in the grace and knowledge of jesus growing in our love for him and our love for each other slipping up falling, getting back up, dusting each other off, and keep moving forward. That's the way that it ought to be, modeling repentance, modeling repentance, what that looks like. What does it look like to persevere in the faith and to try to help carry people along with you as we go? And so that's the kind of repentance I would suggest that we more often need to try to be examples in. And you know what? It also looks like letting people be strugglers. You know, sometimes people are afraid to be honest because they're afraid they're going to get slapped, you know, or reprimanded or scolded or looked down on. We need to be a place where people can feel the freedom to be, a, be you know, one who has struggles, right? Amen? And so all of that needs to be happening. We need to be a place where we can be honest, we can be open, where we can encourage one another, where we can be examples, where we can model repentance and faithfully struggling forward by the power of the Spirit. That was true. That was true of this church, and that is something that ought to be true of us. And lastly, under reputation, D, they were examples in priority. They were examples in priority. Verse 10, And to wait for His Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. They were living for Jesus. They were waiting for Jesus. That was their highest priority in life, the church there. They were examples in priority, living and waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a hard thing to do. You know, the Bible, it's interesting, it, it kind of paints this picture of how we are to wait for the Lord in such a way that His return could be long delayed. And so we're investing in the kingdom. We're, we're digging down. We're putting down roots. We're getting busy. We're serving. But then at the same time, we're to live as though the Master's return could be today. Today. And how do you do that, right? Because if you really live as though He's coming back today, then you're just going to want to sell everything and go wait on Jesus to come back or something, right? You know, but we're to do both. We're to do both. We're to, to, to be prepared as though the Master's return could be long delayed, and we're to be prepared as though the Master's return is imminent. It's coming soon. But nonetheless, we are to be waiting on the Lord Jesus. Our lives are filtered through that reality. We are looking unto Him, the author and finisher of our faith. 
And we are running the race as unto Him for His glory and for His pleasure and for His purposes, waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven. Paul says He is the one whom God raised from the dead. Paul emphasizes the resurrection of Christ. That's a bedrock foundational reality. And He is the one who rescues us from the wrath to come. Another bedrock reality in the gospel. The resurrection of Jesus who saves us from the wrath of God. And it's that Jesus that you guys are waiting for from heaven. And you guys are an example to everybody else in the way that you are waiting as unto the Lord. And that's just a great place to close there because that is the gospel. That is the gospel message. God has sent His Son from heaven to live a life here on this earth that none of us have ever lived. We blew it a long time ago and then a million, trillion, zillion times since. But the Son of God didn't. The Son of God never blew it, not one time. He lived a perfect life, perfect obedience to the Father in every single way. He completely fulfilled the law of God. Imagine that. And then he died a sinner's death. He didn't deserve that. We deserve that. We deserve a sinner's death. We deserve the wrath of God. But Jesus, the perfect, holy, spotless Lamb of God, suffered the wrath of God in our stead. He drank the cup of God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to. And then it was paid in full. That sacrifice, that payment that our Savior made on that cross is of infinite worth. We'll never wrap our mind around what that costs. But it was paid. And Jesus could say it is finished, paid in full. The price has been paid. Now, if you trust Christ, if you believe on Him as the Savior, as your Savior, that He died there on the cross for you, and that your sin was there on His shoulders as He was being crushed under the wrath of God, and that your sin was washed away, washed away, paid, and that He rose again from the grave, vindicated, demonstrating that He was the Son of God, that He was perfectly just and holy and righteous and true. You believe on Him unto salvation, you will be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You will be a child of God, no longer a child of wrath, a beloved son, a beloved daughter, adopted into the family of God. And you will no longer be under the imminent judgment that is coming, the wrath of God, you will be underneath the abundant blessing of God that is poured out freely on His children through Jesus Christ by God's grace. That's the good news of the gospel. And that is Paul's gospel. That is the gospel of Christ. It's the gospel that I preach, and it's the gospel that you must believe. So for anyone in this room who doesn't know Christ that way, you can know Him right now. Call upon His name. Ask Him for forgiveness. Tell him you believe him, you trust him, you love him, you know it's true and you need him, and that you're going to turn away from your old life and you're going to turn to him. Anybody that's watching from home right now, if you know God is drawing you, you know God's calling you, respond. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Believe. Believe on him and you will be saved. Is that not the best news? That is the best news. That's the good news. That was the news that Paul preached in Thessalonica, and they believed powerfully, and they were changed, and they became examples to the rest of the surrounding regions in there of how God worked radically in their midst. And here we are learning from them all this time later, and I see God doing that in the midst of this church, and I praise Him for it. He's worthy, isn't He? 
Isn't God so very worthy of all our praise and honor? He's good. He's so very good. He remains good. He continues to bless and to strengthen and to provide and encourage us day by day.